Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You know what woke means? It means you're a loser. Everything woke turns to sh- Okay. Wokeness is a virus more dangerous than any pandemic hands down. This movement in this country about wokeness has got to stop. Drag shows, gender ideology, critical race theory, and all this other woke BS. And that new disease is called woke culture. It's the new secular religion in America. And its belief system centers on the idea that your identity is based on your race, your gender, and your sexual orientation, full stop. When you go woke, you go broke. We fight the woke in the legislature. We fight the woke in the schools. We fight the woke in the corporations. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, coming to you from the stage of the world-famous Apollo Theater in Harlem, New York. This is a special broadcast of Notes from America to celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day, produced in partnership with WNYC and the Apollo Theater, and broadcast to public radio stations all across the country. And you know what? Is anybody here in this crowd woke? Well, we're going to talk in this show about what that word really means. It's a funny moment in our political culture, one in which simply being aware, being awake to the world around you, that's a dire threat to some people. But honestly, it's not all that new, and nobody can tell you that better than the person who coined the phrase, stay woke. Huddy Ledbetter better known as Lead Belly, was a pioneering folk musician in the early 20th century. He lived a challenging life. He spent his early years in Louisiana and Texas, mainly sharecropping and singing and finding his way through some of the most violently racist years in American history. He may have been a violent man himself. He served a couple prison sentences before he began recording songs in the 30s. But his impact on the culture is undeniable. He found and wrote many folk songs that would become part of the American songbook, as it were. And he loved to engage the conversation. He even had a show on WNYC for about a year. In 1938, Leadbelly wrote a song about the Scottsboro Boys, nine black teenage boys falsely accused of sexually assaulting two white women on a freight train in Alabama. The boys spent a collective 100 years in prison as their cases were tried and became one of the catalysts, at least, for the civil rights movement. And Lead Belly, he connected with their story, and he wrote this song. Now, he's a gravelly-mouthed Southern man, and the words can be hard to make out, but here's a little bit of it. I'm gonna tell all Even in Harlem swing. Don't you know what Goody Alabama is trying to sing? Go to Alabama and you better watch out. I'm going to tell all the colored people living in Harlem swing. Don't you ever go to Alabama, just try to sing. We'll hear a special performance of that whole song in a bit, but first, let's learn more about Lead Belly and the context in which he first told Black people, stay woke. I'm joined by his great nephew, Alvin Singh. He's the lead archivist. Yeah, let's hear it for Alvin. 
He's the lead archivist for Lead Belly's estate, and he's made a documentary about his life. It's called Lead Belly, The Man Who Invented Rock and Roll. Alvin, welcome to Notes from America. Welcome, welcome. It's an honor to be here. How you doing? So, Lead Belly was your great uncle. Yep. When did you become aware of him and your relation to him? Uh, my first, actually, awareness of him was around the age of 11 or 12, and it was a huge certificate in my grandmother's house. And I asked her, uh, when, did, you know, when, when did granddad go to college? And she said, that's not a college certificate. It's a prison <laughs> pardon. And I said, well, when did granddad go to prison? And then that's when the story is to her, her uncle as well, my great uncle. And that's like three years later, he was on a U.S. postal stamp. Yeah. And, but yeah. uh, so that's my connection with Lev okay. Yeah. And before he ever started recording songs, as we said, I mean, he was basically an itinerant farmer, yep. um, traveling around, singing, performing in between farming. What was his early life like? Uh, he was born in Shreveport, Louisiana, so it was sharecropping, but he started early as a musical uh, musician. So he would travel throughout Dallas, Texas, and Texarkana area with Blind Lemon Jefferson. Uh, and back then they would do something called hoboing, which would jump on trains and and play music and go to the next town. Yeah. So he started from that background. And he landed in prison uh, yeah. a couple times for fights that got near near deadly. Yeah, actually, when, remind you, this is Jim Crow America. So this is in the early 30s and 40s of fair trials, mistrials, and all of that took yeah. place. Um, the way my grandmother told the story and I shared in the documentary is this was a time where, you know, you didn't have a DJ and you didn't have things like that. So he was the kind of disc jockey for the party you know there was jealousy that was there and those fights did break out so he ended up in uh sugarland prison which is in texas and he wrote a song uh on the spot for the governor of texas and said if you if i had you like you had me i'll wake up in the morning and set you free and this was a governor who ran his whole election saying that he would never set pardon on anybody and sure enough in 19, uh, I think, uh, at 25, he did do the part. Sang himself out of prison right. for the first Twice, time. Twice, actually, Twice. yeah. Twice. <laughs> but, so being in prison was an important part of his story, too, because it was there where he found and wrote a lot of the folk songs that would become... Yeah, so it, there was a father and son team, the Lomaxes, John and Alan Lomax, who worked for the Library of Congress and Smithsonian to a, a lot of these recordings of folk songs uh, in America. So what Lead Belly would do is travel throughout the prisons and start it off of what kind of songs that they were looking for. And so it ended up being 500-some repertoire songs. Wow, 500-something yeah. yeah. songs. Yeah. And he was inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1988, yeah. which means he's one of the first people inducted. Yeah, he was, that was the first player. A lot of famous musicians inspired him. You've interviewed some of them. Uh, how would you summarize his musical legacy? Oh, we don't have enough time for that, but... Uh, <laughs> I, I, Give it a shot. Yeah, it, it was... So we did the documentary over a span of 15 years, and I started it with my grandmother's uh, address book. And who were the people on it? Odetta, uh, Harry Belafonte, Pete Seeger, Oscar Brand, you know, these kind of people, Joan Baez, B.B. King. And they all had, you know, just uh, great words to say on how he inspired them from where there was, you know, the blues connection or the rock and roll connection, but his music was authenticity, is what I, I would hear right. often a lot. Right. Uh, and, you know, so for example, Pete Seeger expressed to me that, you know, while him and Woody Guthrie would dress up as a common man with jeans and flannel shirts, Lead Belly showed up at Christmas and children's parties with a tuxedo. <laughs> so right. he took his, you know, That's his performance right. very serious. That's right. Uh, so what he's less known for is, as I said, coining the phrase stay woke. And that story starts with his 1938 song called Scottsboro Boys. Uh, and as I said, these are nine boys, nine teenage boys, falsely accused of raping two white women in Alabama. What was Lead Belly's relationship to them? Quickly, he met them, right? Yeah, in the song, he actually um, mentions that he met the lawyer and four of the boys. So four of them were released and five of them were convicted and ended up doing time. Yeah. Uh, he met the four of them when right. he came to New York. And that inspired him. And in his recording of the Scottsboro Boys song, he speaks with an interviewer at the end. And this is where he uses the phrase. And for what we believe is the first time, this is an old record. It's hard to make out, but I still want you to hear his voice. 
So I made this little song about down there. So I, I advise everybody to be a little careful when they go along through that, but stay woke, keep the eyes open. So again, hard to hear, but he says, stay woke, keep your eyes open. That's right. What do you think he meant by it in that time, Alvin? Um, wow, I think it was similar. I used the reference of analogy of like the Green Book, right? So the Green Book was something that uh, if you were traveling in the South, with hotels to stay, which restaurants to go to, which places to go to. So, and his reference from what I'm hearing it is a, is a warning. It's kind of a, a warning. And, and he, he does mention Harlem a lot in that song. He does. So he's telling, and that to me represented the youth, not so much of New York City, but maybe the youth. Uh, and as we know, so if he said that in 1948, 1955 was the Emmett Till case. And so, and he was a Chicago boy as a 14 year old and similar cases. Uh, And so I, I believe in his perspective, it was a warning and, and it was also for you to stay aware of causes wherever you are, you know, wherever, if you don't have a cause, then you got to fight for something, you know. Alvin Singh, thanks for introducing us to your great uncle and his work. We need to take a break. That's right. Thank you, Alvin. We need to take a break, and when we come back, we will get into how and why this word woke has been distorted and weaponized against racial and social justice movements and put this whole moment in the context of history. But first, let's actually hear Lead Belly's song. Mumu Fresh is with us. She's a Grammy-nominated Afro-Indigenous singer-songwriter, and she's created an original arrangement of the 1938 song, The Scottsboro Boys, for this Notes from America special, and I'm so honored to give you Moo Moo Fresh. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex, of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. I'm Kai Wright, and this is a special broadcast of Notes from America celebrating Martin Luther King Jr. Day at the world-famous Apollo Theater in Harlem, New York. What's up, Apollo? All right. I'm joined now by Juliet Hooker. She's a political scientist at Brown University who specializes in Black political thought. Last year, she published a book called Black Grief, White Grievance, 
The Politics of Loss. And it's got a lot to tell us about the current political moment, as well as some of the roots of this argument over the word woke. Juliet, welcome to Notes from America. Thanks for having me. So we just heard a rendition of the song Lead Belly wrote about the Scottsboro Boys, which, as I said, is um, the context in which he said stay woke for the first time. We believe that's where he coined the phrase. Can you put the Scottsboro Boys case into a little more context for us? What, why is it so important? So as you mentioned earlier, of course, it went through many um, trials and retrials. And one of the things that it did was that it um, ended up enshrining a lot of uh, rights for criminal defendants, especially black defendants, because it led to the outlawing of de facto exclusion of African-Americans from juries, which was happening in Alabama at the time because they were based on voter rolls. And as we know, African-Americans were disenfranchised after Reconstruction. Um, it was also something that galvanized African-American communities in the South, and people formed local committees to help defend the Scottsboro Boys. And Rosa Parks, for example, gets her first foray into activism working on the defense of the Scottsboro Boys. It's this catalyst event in so many ways yeah. that I think a lot of people don't know about, right? I mean, how, how, much, how, how much do you think people are aware of, the, of these boys' case? You know, there are these iconic events, right? So there's the, um, the funeral of Emmett Till, there's the Scottsboro Boys case that really lead up to the civil rights movement, but I feel like you're right that the Scottsboro Boys case has kind of fallen a bit off the radar in comparison to some of these others. All right. In one of Dr. King's last published works, it's called Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community, he kind of grapples with the state of the civil rights movement and his aftermath. Talk to me about his mindset before his death and what you think was on his mind mm -hmm. thinking about the civil rights struggle. Yeah, so that is a fascinating text. And he writes it after the Watts uprisings, right? And the, all of the critiques of sort of black rioting and black violence that are that is happening at the time. And he's also spending, um, you know, half of his time living in Chicago and leading protest marches there to protest racism in the North, school segregation, poverty. And he writes about how, you know, one year ago after the Civil Rights Act was um, went into law, the same activists are marching in Chicago and getting pelted with bottles, right. um, jeered by thousands who are carrying Nazi signs. So he's trying to grapple with like, what is this moment in US history and what is happening? And he basically says, you know, um, w there is a narrative that's forming that the, the Watts uprisings are leading to racist backlash. But he's like, no, the backlash started as, you know, before it started as soon right. as people saw that there was going to be black advancement and then there's white resistance. Right. And so, which is to say the grievance came first. Yeah. Uh, the, this is a question that may irritate you as a, a, a scholar and somebody who cares about mm -hmm. history, but in the modern context, would you call Dr. King woke? Oh, great question. Um, if by woke we mean, um, you know, aware of and critical of racism, definitely. You know, um, as um, we know, um, he was, you know, he had these, um, you know, he was a Southern preacher, so not in terms of perhaps some of the things related to openness, to sexuality, gender that we might associate with it. But certainly I think in terms of a radical vision of what racial justice would require in the United States, I mean, the Later, King is the king of the Poor People's Campaign, who's focused on economic inequality. It's also the king who's denouncing U.S. militarism, you know. So he's definitely much more radical, I think, than mm -hmm. he's often portrayed as being. Romanticized as being one might yeah. even say. Yeah, it's okay to clap. <laughs> and, and you point out in your book that there is often this criticism of how black people mm -hmm. protest, experience rage, um, and that it comes from a romanticization of the civil rights movement in the mm -hmm. first place. Can you say more about that? Absolutely. So we now have this narrative of the civil rights movement, right? You had these well-dressed, you know, well-spoken protesters. They protested peacefully, and so their demands were sort of somehow immediately met. 
And we know that's not what happened. And one of the things that that, of course, um, leads to is this critiques of current protesters saying, you're not following the model of the civil rights movement. You're making people uncomfortable. You're, you know, do, you're engaging in looting or violence or this or the other. And what that doesn't take into account is that the whole point of the civil rights movement was to make people uncomfortable. It was to create conflict. I mean, they responded peacefully, but the point was to... Was disruption. Those disruption. Oh, yeah. And so then how, and so that romanticization, you feel like, is a, is, is, a, is a core hindrance to organizing today, or maybe not to organizing today, but for people hearing what organizers have to say today. I don't think to organizing, but to how people respond to organizing, right? Um, in the sense that people are often critical of contemporary activists saying, you're not following the model of the civil rights movement. But then that doesn't take into account the fact that even when people protest peacefully, that doesn't mean that their protests are somehow um, responded to correctly. So if you think about athletes kneeling, the most peaceful protest you can make, and people (laughs) were still... on a knee. (laughs) Yeah, and people were still super critical of those. Your book argues that there's these two big forces mm-hmm. that divide politics in the United States today, mm-hmm. black grief and white grievance. Mm-hmm. So um, just to like lay it out, let's talk about those two buckets first. Let's start with black grief. So by black grief, I mean the way in which black people have suffered losses continually over the course of U.S. history. And they've had to respond to those losses often by mobilizing to gain justice for their loved ones who were killed by violence. Um, and so this has meant that there's this tradition in, um, in black politics of grief, death being this catalyst for activism, right? If you think about the funeral of Emmett Till, if you think about the movement for black lives, right? It was this, these moments of, of outpouring of grief and anger that people then channel into politics in order to try to create change. Right. And then for the white grievance part mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. So white grievance, it, I think of as a form of um, anticipatory loss, right? So there's this the other side of, of black people facing disproportionate loss is that white people have not, as a group, had to face as much. And so they often respond to gains by other groups by feeling displaced. So if you think about the response, some people agree with that <laughs> sentiment, um, of all lives matter as a response to black lives matter. Right? Um, that's because, oh, this isn't some about me. And so this sense of displacement, of being displaced by other people seeking to, um, you know, have their rights upheld, I think is what leads people to see themselves as victims and mobilize in terms of these rhetorics of resentment, yeah. grievance. And you, kept, you opened the book talking about January 6th. Yes. Um, as a cl- kind of classic example mm-hmm. of these two things, black grief and white grievance playing out. Just kind of spell out how you see these two things on that day. Well... I mean, one thing that many people pointed to on that day is the the kid glove treatment that was accorded to the um, January 6th insurrectionists in comparison to how Black Lives Matter protesters had been treated in Washington, D.C., right? Um, And we see this now with people trying to whitewash what happened. I mean, an actual insurrection and calling it, oh, people were just being tourists visiting the Capitol, right? And on the other hand, there are also people who will say things like, you know, Black Lives Matter protests are, are about looting, they're about violence. It doesn't matter what happened in the protests. There's this assumption that, you know, there's something illegitimate about trying to get justice for black people. We, we, typically, we typically take calls as part of our show. We've asked our audience mm-hmm. here at the Apollo to submit questions um, instead of our callers. And Julius here asks a two-part question, but one I want to ask you about. Is it possible to be too woke, too consumed, mm-hmm. and paranoid? Um, and as a student of black political thought, mm-hmm. I do wonder this question. I mean, you know, you've studied the Marcus Garvey mm-hmm. movement. You've mm-hmm. studied some of the... Taking that, that question seriously, mm-hmm. is, there, is, mm-hmm. is there a place where it becomes a problem for a racial justice or a social justice movement? 
So that's an interesting question. I think one thing that I would say is, I mean, it depends on on what we're talking about. So if you mean, you know, in terms of the the personal consequences of feeling like you're always aware of, you know, of the ways in which you're experiencing racism, sexism, all these things. I mean, part of the problem is you can't really turn that off, right? right? And and some people do respond by saying, I'm just going to try to block it out. And then then they realize, no, I can't because you suffer some incidents of racism or sexism. Um, I think as a movement, I think, you know, if we're talking in terms of movements, I think often for movements, it's used to say you're trying to go too far too fast. But, you know, um, MLK used to say, right, um, racial justice is always untimely. There's never a right time to be trying to... (laughs) <laughs> it is always an inconvenient thing mm-hmm. uh, to, to think about mm-hmm. justice. I also gather you're saying that you want to move us out of this, this binary, black, mm-hmm. grief, white grievance, that both of them ha- are narrowing of the imagination. Mm-hmm. What, what do you mean about that? So I think on, you know, on the white grievance side of it, I think that there is the sense that it leads to a kind of zero-sum thinking, right? So not all white people, but some white people feel like if other groups are gaining rights, that's taking something away from them. And so they always have to be opposed to that, even when they might gain from the same policies. If you think about something like expanding Medicare, right, which people end up opposing because they see it as somehow benefiting other groups more than whites. Um, The other thing... On the black side, I think, you know, there's a tradition in, um, in black political thought where I think um, black thinkers and activists have taken on this, um, the sense that, um, you know, it is incumbent on them to try to change U.S. democracy, to try to take on this burden. Um, so Mamie Till Mobley, right, for example, mm-hmm. talked about the, after the death of her son about feeling called by God to become an activist, and, um, and, and it was heroic what she did. And we can, you know, we can celebrate the hero, heroism of people who take on these roles while also thinking about the cost of that activism. You think about somebody like Erica Garner who ends up dying young of a heart attack after taking on this role of activism yeah. after the death of her father. And we can also ask what obligations do we have towards people who are grieving whom we are asking to become activists. I want to turn to the current battleground over wokeness, which is higher education. The most recent news is surrounding Claudine Gay, the former president of Harvard. Mm. She recently resigned her position uh, following a congressional hearing about free speech on college campuses, Mm. but specifically uh, surrounding the debate over Israel's bombardment of Gaza. And the details of her story are winding, and I think well trod at this point. We won't go back mm-hmm. over them, but they include us, you know, accusations that she was not tough enough on an anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. uh, and some attacks on her scholarship, which I think notably focuses on racial representation in positions of power. What does all of this, this moment around Claudine Gay, tell you um, as someone who is sitting in higher education studying racial mm-hmm. justice? What does this tell you about the culture war in higher education right now? So it's extremely disappointing. I think what we're seeing is um, people really weaponizing these concerns about anti-Semitism and, you know, about plagiarism. But it's not really about that. And they're using it, I think, in order to really attack higher education. Higher education itself. Higher education itself, because it started with the public universities where a lot of states, right, were making all of these um, state legislatures, were really trying to clamp down on what was happening in public education. And now they're going to after private education. I think one of the things, one of the reasons that that's happening is because higher education teaches people critical thinking skills and it teaches you accurate history. Did, did you see this coming? I mean, it, from inside mm-hmm. academia, is this moment a surprise to, to folks who do the kind of work you do? Or I don't think it's a su- surprise. I think we, you know, we're in a moment where there is greater visibility of scholars of color on college campuses. I think that's seen as a threat by people who feel like particularly elite institutions should be dominated by 
white straight men. Um, I think it's also the case that we've seen these attacks on higher education for a while now, and um, and they're really about you know taking away the ability of people to really identify misinformation, to really um, respond to some of the wave of, of, of lies and misinformation that we're awash in right now. We have to go to break in a minute, but is, has it had a chilling effect, you think? I think so. I think people are very concerned about what they can say. I mean, people are saying very clearly that donors want to, uh, private institutions want to be able to, to have a same faculty hiring. They want to have a same promotion. I mean, this tells you, toe the line or we're going to come after you. We need to take a break. This is a special edition of Notes from America. We're celebrating Martin Luther King Jr. Day at the historic Apollo Theater in Harlem, New York. I'm talking with Brown University political scientist Juliet Hooker, who is author of the book Black Grief, White Grievance, The Politics of Loss. Coming up, Grammy-nominated artist and activist Mumu Fresh takes the stage again. She's going to join the conversation and talk about how we do, in fact, stay woke. We are at a moment where the idea of staying woke, the idea of being woke, the idea of getting woke is necessary. It's necessary. Because the world would rather have us asleep. I can tell you what woke means. Please. It just means being aware, being in alignment with nature. Because if you're in alignment with that, you're aware of everything that's going on. There will come a time when black people wake up. Wake up! The world woke up. Mm. Finally, their eyes are open to what we already knew. Stay woke. I'm Kai Wright. Stay with us. From the Apollo Theater in Harlem, New York, it's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and what we just heard is a bit of the song State of Emergency by Mumu Fresh, one of my guests for this special Martin Luther King Jr. Day broadcast. Harlem, one more time, say hello. And Mumu Fresh joins our conversation now, though I have to say that your real name is Maimuna Youssef. Yes. Mumu Fresh is your stage name. Right. And it's got a cool origin story. So will you share that with us? My stage name? Yeah. Um, It comes from being on the road with the roots. Mumu is like a pet name, kind of my mother would call me Mumu Sha, Mumu Ye. Um, And when I started touring with the roots, maybe in like 2005... Um, Rozelle had left and Scratch had left. And so I was, you know, trying to fill in with my beatbox, <laughs> my, my early beatbox skills. And uh, I was beatboxing one day and just adding the ad lib and adding to the to the floor what Black Thought was doing. And he just looked back and was like, moo, moo, fresh, fresh, fresh. I was like, oh, I like that. <laughs> that works. And it, and it has a meaning in Nigeria, right? Like, it, Oh, my God. All over the world, Mumu has different... <laughs> Are you sure you want me to tell that story? Well, <laughs> tell, it, tell it in a way that's safe for public radio. Yes, Mumu has many names in many different countries. Uh, I've traveled. Everywhere I travel, people tell me it has a different name. And in um, Nigeria, it means the fool, right? Stupid. So I was like, well, I'm stupid fresh. I feel like it still works, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah, so many, many regions, many, many names. <laughs> Indeed. So we just heard a bit of your song, State of Emergency. It's from 2023. And I have to point out some of the lyrics. 
you write, the world is waking up, no time for the politics, because mm-hmm. we can't lose focus, feeling so hopeless, all that's been broken needs to be fixed. Sign of the times, it's coming quick, and we can't wait on the government. This mm-hmm. is a state of emergency. Right. This is a beautiful lyrics. This is a song about climate change, though. It is. Tell me about that. Well, it's something that affects all of us. You know, all of my life, um, climate change has been a kind of niche cause, right? If you have the luxury to worry about climate change, you know, if you're in this crunchy granola gr- group and you worry about climate change if you because you have extra time, right? And it has not been something that in, in the black and brown communities that we have taken the lead on as we should as stewards of the earth, right? As indigenous people of the land, as traditionally we have, we, we come from the earth. You know, my family's from Mississippi and anybody who has, I'm sure lots of people in here from New York. I just uh, read Dapper Dan's book and he talks about so many people who settled in Harlem actually came from um, North and South Carolina and they kept their communities you know, very tight-knit, and they understood how to farm. They understood how to live in balance with nature and not to harm the nature. Um, and that's something that we've lost sight of. We, we, we have lost feeling like the environment is ours, like Mother Nature is ours and our responsibility, our mother, you know. Um, and it is something that I feel like we need to be in the forefront of making sure that we're preserving this relationship with Mother Earth and caring for her in, in the deep way that I, I believe we were assigned to do. That's right. So that's something you want us all to be more woke about. Um, Absolutely. And uh, one of the things we've asked our audience here is to tell us things they want to be more woke about. They're going to mm-hmm. stand in as our callers uh, in this week's show. So I'm going to get to some of our audience questions mm-hmm. and comments. Um, and one of them, Juliet Hooker, uh, we we got a, a number of questions actually from in our last conversation about the about Israel and Palestine today. Mm-hmm. Um, and Rachel asked, how does MLK's message connect with the ongoing crisis in Palestine and Israel today? Well, I mean, most clearly, right? We know that he would oppose the war because he was um, oppose. You know, he espoused nonviolence. So I think it's it's pretty clear that he would see war not as the solution to the conflict, to anyone's problem, anyone's problems, and that there need to be um, political and diplomatic solutions to the you know the crisis in in Palestine and, and Israel, and and trying to find a way. I think you know for people to live together in in the territory that they find themselves sharing. Why do you feel like you have to engage, this is now for, for, for you, my mood, why, why do you feel like you have to engage politically in your songs? Um, why is that part I of I don't feel world? like I have to. I feel called to, you know? I feel like um, being involved, because people always ask me, how'd you get involved in social justice? I say, well, I was born into it. <laughs> I didn't have a choice, you know? You yeah, and so it's just... I feel it on my heart, you know, I, and I, I write about what I feel spiritually called to to sing about, to talk about when I moved to things, I, you know, I consult with God, like, is this something you want me to speak on? When should I speak on it? How should I speak on it? Um, so that that is something that I, I'm, among many other things I feel strongly about when, during Standing Rock, the resistance at Standing Rock, when we were protesting these pipelines, that was a cause that I really felt strongly about getting the hip hop community involved in, right? Because a lot of people felt like, oh, that's an Indian issue, that's a Native American issue. But water is an everybody issue. And, and we don't have forever to figure this thing out. We do not have forever to figure this thing out. You understand what I'm saying? This is not somewhere far in the future. Maybe we'll let future generations figure it out. Like, we don't have that kind of time. Um, and so I, I wanted people to feel the urgency of it. And if the government isn't doing it, every last one of us can make a choice every single day to protect the environment, to stop using fossil fuels. All of us can, can make that choice. And we have the power to push this thing forward, even if the big companies don't want it. We have the ability to force their hand to save all of us. <laughs> We're talking, we've talked about the climate, we've talked about nonviolence and war. Uh, here's a question from Lynn Lee that I think connects some of these ideas. 
I wish people were more aware of things happening in other countries and understood systems that work abroad, like healthcare. How do we get beyond American exceptionalism and learn mm. from other communities and societies? That's big. That's big. So in our wokeness, how do we think globally? Do you, you want to you take that, Juliet? So I think this is a, you know, this is something that is a real problem in the U.S., that because of this narrative of American exceptionalism, everybody is, is so focused on what's happening here, as opposed to thinking, you know, how can the U.S. learn from other places? And I think one way in which we can think about this is, you know, there are all these things that are actually not going well in the United States that are wrong, and maybe we have something to learn from other people. Yeah. You want to add to it? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like we need to travel more. You know, I see people make, com- you know, make comments about comparing other countries to this country and they haven't traveled anywhere. How would you know? How do you know what's going on, you know? And also seeing ourselves... You cannot be aware if seriously. you literally do not know. And seeing ourselves connected, like everything impacts the other. We're not, you know, some island. Like, I, given, given the conflict, right, I've heard... Many black people saying, well, why are we worried about what's going on in Palestine? You know, how come we're not worried about what's going on in Congo and in, and in um, Niger and in Nigeria? And we absolutely should be worried about all those things, but those things are connected. The, the more you travel, the smaller the world gets. These things are not isolated. Financially, they're connected. Politically, they're connected. I mean, you see that South Africa is, is leading this charge in this lawsuit. We are connected. We are not, and, and, and we have to see ourselves that way. We cannot keep seeing ourselves as isolated, even by race. You know, we are, to me, we are connected by thought, by intention, by where your heart is, by your morals. That is where we are connected and, and aligned. And, you know, and on this point about where is our attention, I, I really would love, I, we're talking about woke today, but I've always wanted to wage a campaign against the words either or in any right. political conversation right. and get us to use the words both and as often as we can. Yeah. Um, Cheryl asks, how do you make MLK's messages of black liberation and the end of oppression relevant to immigrant communities? This is something mm-hmm. I think both of you would have something to mm-hmm. say about. Juliet, you want to chime in? So I think this is um, where your point about thinking in and or is really important, right? So the thinking, you know, there are ways in which this is not simply, um, we need to think about how all our struggles are connected. Mm -hmm. Thinking about, you know, things like immigrant detention or the separation of children from their families at the border, that this is connected to mass incarceration. It's connected to the way in which we think about policing you know, as a way out of problems, as opposed to thinking more creatively about how we, um, you know, how we might solve certain kinds of problems. And also, if you think about the rhetoric around, you know, there's a kind of immigrant invasion and the sense that people are feeling um, uh, being displaced, that's mm-hmm. connected also to people who are already here, who are also not seen as full citizens, right? So these things aren't disconnected because they're all part of what do we want the U.S. to look like? What do we want it to be like? How do we want to, to treat its citizens? And what kind of state do we want to have? Do we want to have a state that polices, that, you know, um, that is oppressive or a state that takes care of people? Mm-hmm. I think it's aligned with MLK's message, um, in particular because he was trying to get the workers' unions mm-hmm. created, you know. And on, on that level, we are very much in this same economic struggle, right? You see a lot of the tensions have to do with economics, you know? It has to do with people's fear about not having enough, right? And there not being systems in place that make sure that everyone has enough, because there is enough for everyone if it's distributed properly, right? Um, And then I also think there's something to be said about our elected officials, foreign policy, destabilizing governments that make it unsuitable for those individuals to live in their own countries. There's something to be said about that. Alan asks, how do we remember the experiences of people over the age of 60, such as segregation? And as somebody who's studied so much of that era, Juliet, I think it's a good question. How do we, in 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 a... media and political environment that is 
necessarily so future mm-hmm. and youth focused. Mm-hmm. How do we remember what we could have learned from folks who actually lived through some of the segregation yeah. that we're talking about? That is a really good question. So I think this question of, of, of memory, of how we remember and what we remember is so central because, you know, even thinking about the civil rights movement and that that sort of romantic narrative that's become the official memory of it. We misremember so many things and then we also choose to remember some and not others. And so I think going back to those folks and trying to to preserve the memory of that time, but also thinking about how it connects to the present, right? Not to be presentist and to say the only reason to preserve it is because of what we can learn from it, but also to to think about why it's important to, to, if you look at debates today about, you know, things like teaching the 1619 Project or, you know, how did they teach U.S. history, that having an accurate memory of that history is so central and teaching it and passing it on is absolutely essential. Maimuna, earlier in the show, we heard your incredible rendition of the Scottsboro Boys led Belly song. (laughs) Were you familiar with the song before this? I was not, but and I was also interested that he used the word woke in the track. I was like, wow, they've been saying this since back then. But you, but you, you had just come to him. Tell me, yes. what what are your reflections on him now that he's come to you? Well, I mean, I love that he was a political activist in making music about such a what could have been a possibly dangerous topic at that time. You know, like that he was really stepping out on faith and and singing about things that could have gotten him harmed at that time. He right. was he was. It was very brave of him to, to do that and to lift up the story of the Scottsboro Boys. That was very courageous. Your rendition was wonderful. Thank you. you also have a song called Say My Name that is a yes. tribute to Sandra Bland. Mm-hmm. Sandra Bland was, of course, the 28-year-old black woman who was found hanged in a jail cell in Texas in 2015. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about that song? Yeah, so I remember watching on YouTube, I watched her be pulled over and handcuffed and arrested. And, and when we found out that she had been hanged in prison, um, I just remember seeing so many of the comments, just having so little remorse for this woman, you know, saying things like, well, she was probably talking too much, you know, black women are real mouthy. And, um, it just vexed my spirit so much that I wanted to I wanted to write a tribute to her so that you could empathize with her humanity, that she wasn't just a mouthy black woman who, you know, asked for it, but that you could really, really feel her humanity and put yourself in her shoes and like, what would you want to have been said about you? Would you have wanted someone to empathize and see your humanity and and to, to give you a second chance or, or, or first chance or to, to not have seen you as a criminal off, off rip, you know? And, um, and I, I wrote it in, um, a doo-wop style, you know, as a tribute, you know, we tribute our ancestors with the doo-wop style. Um, yeah. And it just was, it just was really important for me to tribute her. And I ended up meeting her mom, Mm. her mom actually, I don't even know how she got my number. She just called me at like five in the morning. Like, are you mama fresh? (laughs) Wow. And I could tell she was a you know older woman and I was raised right. So I said, Yes, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, I'm Sandy's mom. And I just broke out in tears. Oh, you know, man. we just just, you know, built a very beautiful connection around that. And I told her I would make sure I would always lift her daughter up and tell her story and 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 embody her humanity, you know. That is a lovely thought for us to close on. We are gonna have to leave it there. Before we go, Mumu Fresh is going to give us one more performance. So let me get some business out of the way for her while while she gets ready to do that. I want to thank Juliet Hooker. She's a political scientist at Brown University and author of the book, Black, White, Black Grief, White Grievance, The Politics of Loss. Thank you so much for being with us today, Juliet. Thanks for having me. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Check out our podcast for any episodes you may have missed or want to revisit. We're on Instagram at Notes with Kai. A big, big thanks to our partners at the Apollo Theater and to our incredible live audience here in Harlem. (laughs) 
And thanks to the Grammy-nominated recording artist and activist Mumu Fresh, who is ready to sing for us. I'm Kai Wright. This is Notes from America. And here is Mumu Fresh with North Star. I had planned to do North Star, but I think I'm going to go ahead and do Say My Name for you all. Since I'm This episode was produced by Regina Dehir. Our theme music and sound design is by Jared Paul, mixing this week by Mike Kutchman. Special thanks for live engineering to Ed Haber, Irene Trudell, and George Wellington. Our team also includes Karen Froman, Suzanne Gabber, Felice Leon, and Lindsay Foster-Thomas. And hey, remember, you can always talk to us by going to notesfromamerica.org and leaving a voice note right there on the site. Thanks for listening. Would you shake your head, think this ain't right? Would you do your best to forget about me? Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting, but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged.